this is not how I thought my life was going to turn out. I wonder if the Apostle Paul thought those words as he was sitting on the shoreline of Malta, having survived a horrendous shipwreck, 276 wet, cold, shivering, but alive passengers there on that small little island near Italy. This is not how I thought my life was going to turn out. There was a Paul who was highly educated, who was affluent, who went to one of the premier universities in the Roman Empire, Tarsus. There was that Paul who... His career was on the rise. He was surpassing many his own age. There was a Paul whose legal mind in Hebrew jurisprudence was peerless. And there was a Paul that was determined to stamp out that pestilent and heretical sect called Christianity. And so that Paul went from house to house to house, breaking up families, hauling mothers and fathers to prison. There was that Paul who was coercing families to inform on other families so that he would pursue those families who would inform on other families, and so on and so forth. That Paul had dedicated his life to extinguishing Christianity, and there was that Paul who had given his nod of approval for the brutal and violent execution of this saint-like Stephen, whose last words were, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. There was that Paul. And there was that Paul who was making his way outside the city of Damascus, ready to arrest more, incarcerate more, persecute more, when right at noon, outside Damascus, that Paul was body slammed to the ground by this blazing light from heaven and there was that Paul who heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, your king, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city. You'll be given instructions there. We're done here. And Paul never went back after that. I mean, that, that Paul of Acts chapter 8 died. And the Paul that we see is the Paul of Acts chapter 28, which is where we are. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn 
to Acts chapter 28. Paul, this former Christian killer, has now become Christianity's premier advocate and apostle, apostle for Christ. And in Acts chapter 28, Paul at last comes to the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, as Jesus had promised. And we're going to look at these verses, and I'm going to read verses 16 to 31. You can follow along with me. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's Word. This is not how I thought my life would turn out. I mean, the, the Paul of Acts chapter 8, the persecutor, 
and the Paul of Acts 28. I mean, what hope that brings for us who wonder, can the gospel change lives? And here it is. This is the testimony of someone whose life was changed and God used and took him on three missionary journeys across the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, establishing the very Christian cells that he once went to stamp out. And then, then Jesus promising Paul that he would stand before Caesar. Paul makes his way to Rome and this horrendous shipwreck lands them on the island of Malta. And the apostle Paul, the old Paul is dead. The new Paul is a Paul that is alive by the very life of Christ. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it's no accident that the last verse of the book of Acts contains the words, all boldness and without hindrance. And what I want to know is, you know, what is it that brought the Apostle Paul this, this unhindered boldness for Christ? And I'm convinced that it wasn't his giftedness that made him bold, but it was God's grace. God's adopting, rescuing, redeeming grace that was applied to this person and transformed him. And I want you to know that that transformation is available for us here today. And I want you to see how that transformation looks in three specific locations in Acts 28, Malta, the island of Malta, where uh, the crew finally uh, found themselves after the shipwreck, and then on their way to Rome, on route to Rome, uh, we see uh, Paul's unhindered, the effects of Paul's unhindered boldness for Christ, and then in Rome itself. Malta, on route to Rome, and then Rome itself. That's where we're going here this morning. Well, Luke says that we were brought safely. So Luke is one of the witnesses in, um, in Acts chapter 28. And, and Luke testifies to the unusual kindness shown by the islanders of Malta. Look at verse 2. They showed us uh, unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. So they're shivering, it's cold, it's wet, and the islanders have come and there's a fire that's built to warm them and dry them out. And you know, Paul, when he boarded the ship two weeks ago, he boarded as a prisoner, but then when the crisis occurred, his leadership gifts just uh, surfaced and led to the rescue of all on board. But then I want you to notice in verse 3 how now that they're back on the island, he kind of resumes uh, his uh, status as a, as a prisoner and just does whatever needs to be done to serve and help. Verse 3 says, 
Paul was gathering a bundle of sticks and putting them on the fire. So the fire is going and he's going to get more wood to keep the fire going so they can warm uh, themselves. And, and while Paul was doing that, he puts the sticks on the fire. You know, you've done things like that before. And all of a sudden, out of the fire, Luke says, a poisonous viper right on his hand. And the islanders look and they're... they're they're like, a, you know, they see this, right? Verse 4, the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. They said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Now, let's just stop there for just a minute. <laughs> Can you imagine living in a culture where, you know, you go to try to help and then a poisonous, venomous snake that will kill you? fastens itself to your hand, and the very first thing out of the locals' mouths are not, call 911, or is there a doctor in the house, or where's the first aid kit? No, the very first thing out of the mouth are, well, who did he murder? <laughs> really need to work on our people skills, right? But that was their worldview. You see, their worldview was uh, kind of a, absolutized law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. So they saw this venomous snake biting Paul's hand and they're reverse engineering. They're thinking, oh, this bad thing has happened. What bad thing did he do, right? And that was just their worldview. The, the gods are punishing him. He may have escaped the sea, but look, verse 4. Though he has escaped the sea, justice, you see the capital J? The goddess, justice, has not allowed him to live. That was their worldview. And you know, Paul takes the snake, shakes it off into the fire, you know, like a mosquito bite or something. And, and they're waiting, right? Is his hand going to swell up? Is he going to get feverish? Are you going to get the chills? Are you going to fall down dead? Verse 6, they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, they didn't change their worldview because now they just swung to the other extreme. Well, he's not a murderer. He's a god. And no, it's not, it's not that either. I'm, you know, he's neither a criminal nor is he a god. And we've been here before. We've been here before. Acts chapter 14 in Lystra, when Paul was talking to um, locals in that town, and they were trying to, to venerate him, and make a god out of him. And so Luke doesn't, Luke doesn't get into the details of how Paul corrected them. Well, he's finishing up his book for one thing, and, and we already know. I mean, Paul was there three months. He's not going to not share the gospel. He's going to tell about, he's going he's to say, this world is not made of gods and goddesses. This world has come into existence by the creator God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is committed to justice because justice is a part of his character. And justice is not the final word. His grace, his love, those are his final words. And those words were put on display in the sending of his Son, 
to rescue us and redeem us. And, and his son was a victim of injustice so that we might be beneficiaries of grace. And so Paul has come as an apostle, a messenger, an agent of God's grace. Unhindered boldness. Based on what? Based on his identity as a sent messenger of heaven. And, and later Paul and Luke and Aristarchus were guests of the governor of the island of Malta. You see that in verse 7? man by the name of Publius. Luke says, received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And while there, Luke says that the father of Publius uh, grew very ill. And Paul visited with him and prayed, laid hands upon him and healed him. Grace, mercy, God's goodness has come to this place. And, and when the islanders heard of that, my goodness, they started bringing the sick. Do you see that in verse 9? When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and, and they were cured. And there was a spiritual awakening that occurred. For the first time, these, these heard capital T truth about the goodness and grace of God through Jesus Christ. And... I think that the best commentary over Acts 28, 1 through 10 happens to be something Jesus himself said in Luke 10, 16 to 20. Luke 10, 16 to 20. In fact, I have it up here on the screen. Jesus said, the one who hears you hears me. So the people in Malta heard Paul and therefore heard Jesus, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And Jesus spoke those words to 72 that he had sent out in his ministry. And, and then when the 72 returned, this is what Jesus said in, in verse 18. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then verse 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So what's happening to Paul is a fulfillment of what Jesus spoke about in Luke chapter 10. Now, before you go out to PetSmart and start your snake handling ministry, you know, let, let me just remind you that if we're going to be doing some responsible interpretation of these verses, we've got to ask questions like, you know, who was Jesus talking to? And uh, was he just talking to these specific folks or folks or all of us folks? You see what I'm saying? And I, I'm going to argue that in these verses, he's talking to the 72 and he's talking to the ones that he has, he has personally specifically sent. And, but I do think there is something for us in verse 20 that we need to pay attention to because 
It seems to me sometimes we get the mistaken impression that my boldness for Christ comes through my giftedness. And if I were just more gifted, if I were just more equipped, then I would have more courage. And I want to deconstruct that by something Jesus said in verse 20, because this is what he says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is so very important. And let me ask it this way. What fascinates you more? What God does through you or what he has done for you? When do you feel greater thrills of joy and fulfillment? When you consider your recent progress or triumphs in ministry? Or when you consider the endless, increasing, unearned inheritance waiting for you on the other side of all your work in this age? Jesus says, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice that you made many friends in Jesus' name or sacrificed to help the poor or were outspoken for the cause of justice or even led so many to saving faith. And those are good things, but don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. So, so deeper than the happiest and most romantic marriages, sure than the most majestic mountains and beautiful beaches, higher than the greatest miracles or successes in ministry is the joy of having your name hidden in God's heart. That the fuel for unhindered boldness is not being impressed with your giftings, but being in awe of God's grace. Now, that's something for all of us to remember. And, and Paul just never got over the fact that Jesus changed his life and never got over the new person that Christ made him to be. You, you understand, don't you? Paul didn't become a Christian because he felt his sins needed to be forgiven. Paul didn't become a Christian because he had attained wealth and uh, a status and education and a career track. And then when he got to the top of the mountain, he realized uh, that, you know, he just wasn't as satisfied as he thought he was going to be. That wasn't the Apostle Paul. He was quite self-satisfied with his life. Have my sins forgiven? What do you mean? I'm blameless. That was his heart. That was his attitude. That's really just what he thought. Why did he become a Christian? He became a Christian because he saw a dead man come back to life. That's why. And Jesus didn't ask Paul if he wanted to become a Christian. <laughs> he took him and changed him. And his entire identity became that of... In fact, 1 Corinthians, Paul asks the question, what is Paul? That's an identity question, isn't it? You think our culture isn't asking that question? What is Paul? You know what he says? Servant. Slave of Christ. I belong to another. You know, whatever he says, it's his life. It's not my life. And that's very evident on Malta. And, and that... The power of that to transform an island, church family, that, there's nothing on earth that can do that. 
Only Jesus in heaven. Well, that's Malta. And uh, verse 11 says, Three months later, uh, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship from Alexandria. Get those eyewitness memories there. It's very detailed. And they begin to kind of meander up the western coast of uh, Italy uh, on their way, and they uh, arrive at a place called uh, Puteoli. And verse 14 says, We found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. Verse 15 says, The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. So we get this. So they find out that Paul is on the way to Rome, and so they leave town, and they go out to greet Paul and escort him back into town. That's what's going on here. But Luke is telling that. He, he, he wants to convey a very, uh, well, it might be subtle to us, but it wouldn't have been so subtle in the first century. And here's the message. Here's the message. In first century Roman Empire, when the citizens were ready to receive the, the emperor, they would actually leave town. And they would go out and wait for the emperor to come their way, and then they would all come back together once the appearing, the visitation, the parousia would occur. They would go out and meet the emperor, and they would all come back in. And so Luke is communicating to us that Paul is no prisoner. Paul is an ambassador of the one true emperor. And so the subjects of the kingdom are coming out to meet an envoy of the king. And they came. And, and keep in mind, these are the brothers who were a part of the church at Rome. Because, see, Paul didn't start the church at Rome. There was already Christianity when he arrived. And uh, here these brothers came and it's like, oh, you're Paul. We've heard about you. We read your letter. See, they had read the letter to the Romans, and now we're meeting the one who dictated that letter. Oh, my goodness. People that Paul didn't even know had been touched by God's grace and ministry through him. Now, I can't help but think about just the privilege of that. You know, don't you? You know this, don't you? That in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to meet someone and, and you, they're going to say, now where did you worship, you know, in the previous life? Well, I worshiped at a congregation on Windsor Road. Windsor Road? Oh. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Peru. I grew up in Nepal. I grew up in Haiti the Dominican Republic, Eswatini. I grew up, and you came. You sent representatives. And, and we didn't really do very much. Oh, you provided a cold cup of water just when I needed it. Just, you, you, you came to Rantoul, to the Multicultural Center, and you met the needs of my family. I was one of the migrant families. And you made a difference. 
you loved. You see, often we think, you know, we want to do big things for God, and we have an idea of what a big thing for God is. And God's idea is, give a cold cup of water in Jesus' name. That will echo through eternity. And you want to know how that can apply right here, right now? Here it is. Before you leave this room, pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Lord, who do you want me to love today? And after you pray that prayer, keep your eyes open. Amen? Malta, en route to Rome. And then finally, verse 16, we came to Rome. We came to Rome and Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. So it's light arrest. He's, in a, he's renting his own apartment and he's chained to a guard. And he meets up with the leaders of the Hebrew community. There were 40 to 50,000 in Rome. And he wanted to meet with the leaders to explain his situation. And we read their conversation. And they said, well, we want to hear what you have to say because we've not heard anything. We've not heard anything, but we do know about this sect and we want to know more about it. And so they set a time, verse 23. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So there was quite a group there. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them. Is that a preacher's paradise or what? All day preaching. Morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. And look, trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. So Paul's arguing that the, the Bible is not, you know, 66 separate books or, or 39 separate books back then. If there's this one sweeping salvation story and all of it, all of it pertains to Jesus. Jesus. I like how Tim Keller puts it. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for condemnation but acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and go out into the world to create a new people of God. Jesus is the new and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so we, like Jacob, only receive wounds of grace to waken us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. He's the true and better Passover lamb, innocent, 
perfect, helpless, and slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate earthly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. Are you out there, church family? <laughs> it's all Jesus. All day long, Paul said, Jesus. And what happened? The same thing that always happens. Same thing. Some believed, some mocked, and some said, tell me more. Verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said. Others disbelieved. And then after disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made this one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Huh, is that the reason why, the reason why you don't believe is not because you don't get it. It's because you don't want it. You don't want it. And you're not willing to humble yourself. You're not willing to see your weakness. You know, if you don't get the gospel, listen, your greatest vulnerability, your greatest vulnerability is not your weakness. It's your delusion of strength. And Paul says, this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And they've closed their eyes. They've willingly closed their eyes. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand. And, I, and turn, and I would heal them. God is, God is waiting for you to open your eyes and turn so that he would heal but they don't want it. And so Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles, verse 29. God has sent me to the Gentiles and they will listen. And when he had said these things, they departed. And the book of Acts ends with Paul living there in that apartment for two years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't that ironic? Paul is chained and yet unhindered. What's the point? The point is you can chain the gospel man, but you can never chain the gospel message. And for two whole years, Paul just proclaimed, and came they did. And Paul, by not being hunted or flogged or shipwrecked or left for dead, 
He was in a place where he could have conversations and where he could dictate letters. And we know of four of those letters that Paul dictated during those two years. You have them in your New Testament. The epistles Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And Philemon tells the story of a runaway slave named Onesimus who met Paul in Rome and Paul shared the gospel to him. And Onesimus listened and his eyes were opened and he became a brother in Christ. <laughs> what an opportunity those two years. You can, chain, you can chain the man, but you can't chain the message. Oh, and then what about those... What about those poor guards? Think about it. Every shift, a new Roman guard was attached to the world's most successful evangelist. <laughs> you can chain the man, but you can never chain the message. What if we, what if we could use our homes the way Paul used his here in Rome? Think about that. Imagine a world where neighbors said that Christians throw the best parties in town and they are the go-to people for the big problems in our culture. Imagine if the children in our neighborhoods knew that the Christians were the safest people to ask for help when unthinkable agony comes. Imagine a world where every Christian knew by name people who lived in poverty or in prison and felt tied to them and to their futures and lived differently because of it. Imagine. Imagine a world where you know the names of your neighbors and you play cards with them and you eat meals together and you pray for their children and your neighborhood. There's just something different about, about your neighborhood. And when people explore and they investigate what makes your neighborhood so different, why? Your name keeps coming up. Imagine a world where no one languishes in crushing loneliness, where no abused woman or child suffers alone, where people take their real and pressing problems to Christians who have a reputation for actually providing help, and, and where victims are not swept away, lost and forgotten. Imagine a world where people fear God more than they fear men and serve God more than comfort. Imagine a world where the power of the gospel to change lives is ours to behold. This is the world that the Bible imagines for us. This is the world that Jesus prayed for to create in His name. A world with openness, that, that we are open before God, that we hold nothing back from God, that we give Him our heart and our desires and our hopes and our dreams and our struggles and our doubts and our fears and our identity. We are vulnerable before God. We are weak before God so that His power flows through our weakness. A world unhindered unencumbered by our failures. That is, we, we do not keep record of the countless times we have failed God and failed our friends in carelessness and failed our own consciences. We don't keep records because He doesn't keep records. Instead of record keeping, we pray for a renewed mind. If we are in Christ, then Christ lives in our place. 
He took our place on the cross and he fulfills our place today. He breathes life and purity and redemption and hope into our relationships and into our communities and into our futures. Less of me, more of him. In Christ, I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm a child of God. And the church said,